Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. We have put together a programme which celebrates women. We find women who are striking out on their own and achieving some extraordinary results. I'm Linda Ness. And I'm Susie Thorpe. And we produce and present Women Making Waves. We have two really uplifting stories to share with you on this episode of Women Making Waves. We're going to meet one of those special women who make a real difference. Christine O'Reilly is part of the Red Hen Project and she supports families in helping their children do well when they may otherwise face difficulties. And staying on the subject of school, we hear from Sonal Katcher, who gave up a lucrative career in banking to save girls of the Masai Mara from female genital mutilation and childhood marriage by setting up a girls' school offering them education and a very different kind of life. That's all coming up on this episode of Women Making Waves. Christine O'Reilly is a big part of the Red Hen Project. Her co-workers think so highly of her that they wanted us to feature her and talk about what she does. We think you'll be really impressed with Chris. Charities are always a collaboration between a number of passionate individuals, enthusiastic to make sure that important work gets done. But sometimes there are people who don't just work hard, they're the heart and soul of the project. That's how our guest today has been described. Christine O'Reilly is part of the Red Hen Project, a charity set up to support families in helping their children thrive at school. Chris's work has been recognised by the award of a British Empire Medal and co-workers think so highly of her that they wanted to bring her to our attention. So we'd like to thank you and welcome you to Women Making Waves today, Chris. Thank you very much. You're a senior homeschool project worker and you've been with the Red Hen Project since 2002 and noticed that prior to that you were a teaching assistant. Was that a job that you enjoyed? It was a job that I loved, actually, and it was working in the local school, so it was in my own community, and uh, I very, very much enjoyed working with the children and, and helping them with their education. It was very rewarding. How did you get into that? Had you done anything like it in the past? Or, I, I mean, I know a lot of friends of mine start that kind of job when their children go to school because it fits in really well with the school day. Absolutely. That was one of the main reasons why I, I wanted to get back into work when my youngest child went to school, but I needed to have a job that w- I could have the school holidays off so that I could have the, be there to look after the children in the holidays. And a vacancy came up for looking after the children with special needs in the, in the local Grove Primary School. It was a school my own children were attending. So it was really, really helpful. And, it, and I found it absolutely amazing. It was really, really good to fit in with my lifestyle and to get the job satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It was perfect when you get something like that, actually. 
You were sadly widowed when your eldest child was just six years old and your youngest was 10 months old. That must have been absolutely awful, incredibly tough. It was very tough going, actually. And I think one of the reasons I was so keen to do work with and around children was that my children, I found it incredibly difficult. It was really hard Mm -hmm. that our life changed instantly and none of the things that we planned and thought would happen and the way we would run our lives were going to be the same. And I think it is very hard. And I think all things that happen in children's lives impact on their ability to cope and do their everyday things, like schooling and things. So I think it made me very aware of how hard it can be for children, really. Yes, I was wondering, (laughs) actually, I was wondering if your own experiences on bringing up children on your own has helped in helping other people in the same situation or, or similar situations. I think it makes you very, very much aware of how hard it is to raise to, to raise children at all, really, but particularly to raise children on your own. Mm-hmm. And and I think it it helps you to certainly be a lot less judgmental because I think it sometimes if you see people not coping and you're not aware of why, it can sometimes be easy to judge how they're doing. But I think if you've been there and done that and you've walked the walk, you know how incredibly difficult it is. I was very lucky. I had my my parents and my sister not far away. Some families don't don't have any support whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really hard. So, yeah, I think it certainly did influence my desire to help children and their families. Absolutely. What happened then? You, you stopped working as a teaching assistant and you went into work in social care. What drove that move? Well, the school system was changing and whereas we'd been taxiing children into one school, so there were lots of children with special needs moving into one mainstream school, education was moving towards children with disabilities being educated in their local primary schools. So, of course, as those children left the school to go back to their local primary schools, there wasn't any need for the TAs. So I still wanted to continue working with children So when a vacancy came up at social care to be a family worker with them, it seemed a really sensible move to make. Mm -hmm. And actually it stood me in really good stead because I'd already got a good outline of an an idea of looking after children within the school setting. But actually it's a whole different thing going into families' homes and supporting children and and their parents when they're very troubled. So I got that experience too, which really helped for the job I then moved on to. Yeah, I can imagine it would. So then you moved on to working for the Red Hen Project. And that sounds like a great organisation. I've been looking at the website and Facebook page. It seems to be a really loved organisation as well. It is. I think because it's based in the community, it's very much community-based, it's now supporting children from five primary schools. But when I first started, it was a very small organisation. We supported children from three primary schools and I was the only worker until about six years ago. So it was very much ownership, I think. I lived in the community as well as working at the Red Hen. I was known locally by lots of people and... I was not exactly on site, but I was available. I was around. So actually, if they had a crisis, they didn't need to wait to be referred to somebody or to go and try and find some help somewhere. Mm-hmm. Actually, they they only had to do what most parents do when they're troubled. Their first port of call is their school. So they would go into their school 
and they would say, I'm really struggling, I can't get them to school, or I'm in debt, I can't do this, whatever their issue was, and their school, rather than them try to deal with it themselves, which is what they did before the project was available, they could say, well, look, we've got the Red Hen project, why don't I refer you to Chris and Chris will come and see you and see what yeah. you can do. And also because we are a local charity and we're not public sector, so we're not social workers, it's entirely voluntary. So anytime those parents think, no, this isn't for me, they can say, no, I don't want that help. Which yep. I, I kind of get, actually, because it's, it's a, a very scary, official isn't thing, isn't it, going through it social is. workers? It is. And, um, and if you're already struggling and you feel you're failing as a parent then actually you, you, you're not keen on somebody coming along and agreeing with you, saying, no, you're rubbish, actually. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, yeah. Not that that's what social workers do, no. but actually as a parent in that situation, that's what you'll feel that is going yep. to happen. Yeah, you know? I completely understand. Yep. Do you think that families are struggling more these days, even before COVID? You know, I'm not talking about the moment where everybody, I think, is struggling. Do you think that families are struggling more these days than, say, you know, 20 years ago? Yeah, I would say so. I, I mean, in my sort of nearly 19 years I started the project, I think they were struggling. There were lots of struggling parents and families, but I think the struggles were different. Over time, I think things that have come up more have been things like poverty and we had a huge increase in issues around domestic violence, more issues around substance abuse, and more pressures from outside. I think as schools are put under pressure to perform better, that pressure kind of goes on to families because yeah. there's the expectation that families will ensure their children are in every day, make sure they do their homework, make sure they do all these things. So that pressure increases. There's the social pressures of trying to keep up with your friends and your families and other families. So I think there are lots and lots of issues. I think what happens with parenting, I think we parent roughly our, how our parents parented, mm -hmm. but we change it a bit. We don't do the bits we didn't like and yes. we add a bit to what we did like. <laughs> but actually, some of the parents we are working with have very little experience of being parented well. So then their ability to do something different is limited. So they will repeat what yeah. happened to them in the parenting. Yeah. And it didn't work for them and it won't work for their children, but they don't know what else to do. So I think if they can li link into somebody, a, a project that is non-judgmental, is easy to access and can be tailored to your needs, it's so much easier to accept somebody saying it would be really good if you could try this. Why don't we try this? So ownership, yeah. I will try it with you. I will support you to do what you need to do to get the outcome you want for your children and family. So I think there are lots more pressures on families and I think that's why they need a different approach to something more heavy-handed, I think. And if you can get in early before the difficulties get really, really entrenched, that's even better. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the pressure from schools because they're they're constantly under, I guess, government instruction to try and absolutely. improve their stats. Yeah. And you absolutely. know what? Not everybody is academic. Absolutely. I get the feeling that these days there's a drive that everybody should be, you know, high achieving and academic. And I know that way back and when I was at school, there were streams and, and, and there were people that were yeah. never really expected to be academic and, and they were, you know, taught differently. And actually, as long as they achieve their best and they are happy 
in their achievements and there is there is there's space in the world for everybody isn't there yeah whether you're a professor or somebody doing a lowlier job if yeah. you know if it's the job we need every job filled don't we that's right and actually it's not just about academic achievement it's about being well balanced and I think there's a huge amount more mental health going on now yeah. even in our young children and that's certainly one of the huge impacts we had on parents a huge percentage of the parents that I've worked with have had mental health issues and they have a huge impact on their children a huge yeah. impact if you struggle to get out of bed in the morning get your children up to have the energy to feed them get them into school uniform and get them to school the first thing that will go will be school yeah although it'd be better for you if they were at school because then you've got your day to try and sort out your mental health and your own issues you haven't got the energy to get them there mm -hmm. so you know those pressures are huge and they always impact on children and it can often fall on the oldest child as well, can't it, to look after the younger ones in that kind of scenario, presumably. Absolutely, yes. We did yeah. work, we've did work. we worked with many young carers, and that's really hard too, really mm -hmm. hard. Have, have you ever come across a problem that you just couldn't fix, that you've had to give up on? I'm not good at giving up. I, <laughs> I don't think you are. I'm not good at giving up. I don't think I've ever come out of a family where either I haven't been able to help them or if I can't help them, I haven't found somebody else who can. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in this sort of work, you, you will come across families where there are huge safeguarding issues. And sometimes the best you can hope for is that if it's beyond what I can do, I can get social care involved. And not in order to take those children away, but in order to put some more intensive work in. My priority was always to support children and their families. But actually, if it's a choice of not safeguarding the children, but yeah. supporting the families, then that can't happen. Yeah. So sometimes there, there comes a time when you have to say, no, this isn't safe, so this needs to go to somebody else. But interestingly, I don't think there was ever a case that went to social care that I hadn't built a good enough relationship with the family before to not be able to do it with their... Not permission, exactly, because I don't need permission if I'm concerned about child safety, but without them going along with me. Yeah, without them understanding. Saying, yeah, absolutely. And by being able to say, I, this, this isn't safe, this isn't something I can deal with, we will have to refer it, but I am very happy to stay around with you for the beginning in order to come to meetings with you, be there when you meet your social worker for a little while so you feel safe that somebody else is there to help you, not to judge you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's still a success, isn't it? It is. Even if they haven't fixed it, you know? Yeah. No, you're right. Do you ever have difficulty keeping a professional distance? Because you must get to know these people really, really well. You do get to know these people really, really well and you do get attached to them, but it has to be in a safe way. So... You know, I would never get into a relationship that was not a professional way. Sometimes the family struggled with that. I remember one lady I was working with, and she, it was a very, very difficult case. And they had some very difficult things going on in their family. And, and I supported her for a long, long time. And she did once say to me, it's so good to have you as a friend, Chris. And I mm -hmm. felt quite bad. But I said, actually, I'm not your friend, we get on really well and we're working well together to address your issues. But I can't be your friend because that doesn't feel very safe. And yeah. she was quite upset for a little while. 
so I, I sort of did a short visit and then I phoned her back the next day and said, you know, you were clearly upset by that. And we talked it through and actually she said afterwards, yeah, she realised that actually that was right and that she couldn't be a friend, but could she keep in touch when, she, when I closed the case? And I said, you know, through work you can. Yeah, absolutely. You can drop into the Red Hen anytime you like or come to one of our sessions. That would be brilliant because I love to hear how you're getting on. And I think that's the advantage with being local. And we would do things every year since, well, probably since I joined the Red Hen, actually. The Arbury community have Arbury Carnival. Mm -hmm. So there would be stalls all set up on the green and a carnival parade and all sorts of things. And I always made sure that pretty much every year we were there, we'd have a tombola and a cake stall. We would make a little bit of profit, not a huge, but actually what it did was we had an opportunity for those families to come to the carnival and come and see us on the stool and come and chat and update us on how well they were doing. And by, believe it or not, after 18 years, the last time we went to the Arbor Carnival, which wasn't, obviously wasn't this year because it was cancelled, but last year when we went, I had people coming and say to me, do you remember her? Do you remember when you helped me to get her to go to school every day? <laughs> I said, well, I remember you and I remember doing that with you, but I certainly don't remember this young lady because she was there with a baby. And I was wow. thinking, oh, how did that happen? You were such a little girl. <laughs> so, and I think it's an incredible achievement if you can go into families and actually effectively saying what you're doing isn't working and it's not right, we need to change all this and them still want to come and see you and show you how well they've done. Yeah. You know, you've given the confidence to believe in themselves that they are able to be good parents and raise their children. Look, you can see I've raised her well because look, here she is, a mum herself. So, oh, lovely. You know, it's amazing. That really is lovely. Amazing. Yeah. The team themselves at the Red Hen, they sound like a friendly bunch. Is it, does everyone get on really well? Is it a good place to work? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, yes, everybody gets on. It's really, really nice. And there are close links with the schools too, so that's really helpful. I think that helps parents and children and schools really to, because mm -hmm. there's a limit to how much schools can know about the families, yes. obviously, because they see the children in school but not otherwise. So sometimes it's really helpful for parents to know that if they're worried about something in school, you can help them with that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, and, and I say, and all the staff at the Red Hen get on very, very well. It's really good. Now, you've, you've been suffering from ill health yourself recently. I have, unfortunately, yes. yes. And, so and I've you, been off sick for some time now. So you've not been able to be as maybe as involved as you would like to. I'm assuming yeah. you're involved a wee bit. I'm involved in as much as I keep in touch with them and I and I do things like they've got their Christmas appeal. So I've been doing the, the wish list on Amazon for their Christmas present appeal and I did a wish list for them for things like half, when half term comes up, obviously families struggle to keep children occupied. So I did a wish list, for, list on Amazon for art and craft materials that people very kindly donate. And I do uh, video links occasionally to their drop-ins obviously they're not doing drop-ins at the moment when they were doing drop-ins I'd do a video link and chat to the families mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's tough actually and I feel if if I'd been well and working during the um the covid things I know I would have been up to my armpits and sorting out who needed help with food and who who yes. needed help with whatever and I felt quite bereft really quite bereft that I couldn't be there doing what I've been doing for 19 years. Yeah. Yes, I can imagine. But 
you know the the time comes that you, you've got to uh, you've got to shield, and, and that's and that's Absolutely. unfortunately the the yeah. case. The sad thing is, I was off having treatment and things, and obviously that's why I'm shielding. But it came to my retirement time before COVID was under control. So sadly, I now will be retiring and won't have done all the wonderful goodbyes and things that I had hoped <sighs> that we would do before the end. But we did do a really lovely Zoom meeting where I was obviously at home, but the staff from Red Hen and the staff from the schools and amazingly parents that I've worked with over the years, some from a long, long time ago and some more recently, and other professionals that I've worked with all sort of joined us on a Zoom meeting and it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I can imagine because I know having spoken to um, someone that you work with, you are really highly regarded. They absolutely love you. She couldn't speak more highly <laughs> about you, actually. And I oh, know you've lovely. recently been awarded the British Empire Medal. Oh, How did that feel when you heard about that? Oh, it was Absolutely incredible. I mean, you do these jobs because you love it and it's addictive and, you you know, you get caught up in it and it's amazing. And actually, you see yourself as just, I'm just Chris, I'm just Chris who works at the Red Hen. And then out of the blue, you get an email to say, wow, well done, you've got a BEM. <laughs> so it was unbelievable. But the really tough bit was I had an email in May to say you've got a BEM, but actually... You're not allowed to tell a soul, not even your family <laughs> and friends, until October, which oh, was no. incredibly difficult. Incredibly oh, that's murder. <laughs> it was tough. It was tough. I think probably being in lockdown probably helped because I didn't see anybody to tell, so that was helpful. But keeping it from my children was really hard. Do you get to go and pick that up from Buckingham Palace at some stage? It would be local, but because of all the COVID stuff going on, we don't know when it is. And also, I'm still shielding, so we don't actually know if when it, if, when it happens, I will be allowed to go. So I'm oh. hoping it will. Julie Spence, who's the Lord Lieutenant, did mm-hmm. say that if, if I couldn't, then she would arrange to do it on a one-to-one level. But I would love to, to go and get it and meet other people who've got similar awards it would yes, be wonderful that would be lovely yeah. julie spence is is lovely we yeah. had her on this program actually and she's fantastic yeah. <laughs> she is brilliant and several years ago i met with her at an evening talk i gave about the project and she said she was very interested in it and she came to see us see me at the office and we talked about what we did and she you know she's kind of been around the periphery of the project ever since which is really lovely She's a very nice lady. Yes, she is. She's very supportive and really, really nice. Absolutely. Chris O'Reilly, it's been great having you on Women Making Waves today. We feature inspirational women, and you truly are an inspirational woman. And it's been such an honour to have you on the programme today. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Linda, what an incredible lady, Christina Riley, part of the Red Hen Project. She's been through quite a bit and I just love her empathy, her empathy for the people that she is helping. I know, but to be widowed quite suddenly when she had very young children, that in itself is a real shocker, actually, awful. But that, I think, has given her a lot of strength, I suppose. Mm. You know, she had to do all of this herself when she wasn't expecting to. And that's, I think if you choose to be a single mother, 
then it's a choice. If it happens to you like the way it happened to her, with all of your dreams shattered and and you're left with children to bring up, I mean, how awful, how awful. But then she she's turned that and used that to good avail. She has, she has. And it, it takes someone really special to do that. And, and I know she says in the interview that her parents and her sister were very near to help her. But I just can't, but I, it's incredible. We, we, you know, we have a lot of empathy with people nearest and dearest to us, but she seems to have empathy for all sorts of situations. And that's what mm-hmm. I find really remarkable. Yeah. And she's not very well at the moment, you know. She said she was shielding just now, so she's she's got a lot to, a lot to think about. Yeah. What really inspired me as well about her was previous to to chatting to her, some of her workmates or one of her workmates talked to mm-hmm. me, and they were just glowing about her. You know, yeah. they they said that she was absolutely amazing and brilliant to work with, and they just loved her. Yeah, you, know? you can tell. So you can, yes, you can, mm, and, really and, and that in itself is. A huge endorsement. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Sonal Katcha is one of those people who can't see bad things happening without trying to make them better. She talks to Linda about leaving her job in the city to start a charity helping girls of the Mazai Mara. Philanthropist Sonal Kacha is determined to change the lives of East African girls and young women, many of whom receive little education and are often destined to experience female genital mutilation and become wives and mothers at a very young age. Appalled at this situation, Sonal founded the charity Educating the Children, which went on to set up a secondary school for girls of the Maasai Mara in Kenya. Thank you very much for joining us on Women Making Waves today, Sono. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, tell us a little about your background. You graduated with a first in chemical engineering at Queen's College, Cambridge, I believe. Did you enjoy that student life? I loved Cambridge, actually. It was it was such an amazing experience, especially because I grew up in a immigrant Indian family and community in Hounslow. And it was very, very different to then going off to Cambridge and meeting people from all over the world and being around kind of like top class learning. It it was an amazing experience, I have to say. So it was a bit of breaking the mould going to Cambridge. And I, you know, I was the first person to go to university as well from from my family. But I do I'm really grateful for the for them supporting me and being behind me. Yeah, I guess it must have been fear yeah. as well as pride, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do after you left university? So then I went off and I started working in the city. I was really adamant that I wanted to become financially independent. So at the time, it seemed like the city was the best place to be. So I started actually working on the trading floor in a very male dominated environment. Yeah, it was it was very much work hard, play hard kind of mentality a bit a bit like Cambridge really yeah, yeah. I suppose. But, but that is a very tough environment so to move on to what you've actually done you went on a mm. visit to the Maasai Mara it was with Richard Branson and Virgin Atlantic wasn't mm, it because yeah you, I'm assuming that you were flying around a lot and you were you're a valued customer 
Yeah, exactly. You got that. Got that right. So it was um, to celebrate their new route from London to Nairobi at the time. So they had invited some of their customers on this co corporate social responsibility trip where we were raising money for the building of a new dormitory at a primary school in the Masomara in a community called Sekanani. And then we, we went out there and spent some time helping to build the dormitories as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really good fun. And it was my first time in Africa, even though my mum was born in Africa, I hadn't been to Africa before that. So it was a very special experience. So yeah. when you were on that visit, you visited mm. some schools and what you found there, you, you were quite aghast about, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I noticed that the classrooms were completely overcrowded. There were 100 pupils in a class to one teacher. Wow. And at the time, you know, the Millennium Development Goals was aiming for universal primary education for all children. And so in response to that, the Kenyan government had made primary school free for children and that led to like an influx of children into like classrooms and, and you know I, I guess they didn't really think about adding more teachers at the time yeah <laughs> the girls in particular I think you, oh. you noticed there was a problem they don't often go on to secondary education do they actually so you know initially I set up um, educating the children as a teacher scheme so whereby UK teachers could volunteer in the local primary schools in the Maasai Mara. And that was in response to seeing how overcrowded the classrooms were. And then one of our teachers, volunteer teachers, noticed that once these children finish primary school, there's no secondary school for them to move on to. So at the time, the region had 47 primary schools and no secondary schools. And so we decided, OK, let's build the first secondary school in the region. And then we worked quite closely with the community to figure out, OK, who should we target? How should it be built? How should it be operated? And the experience we'd built up showed us that actually girls were the most marginalised part of society. They were undergoing practices such as female genital mutilation, even though Kenya has banned FGM. It, it still happens in yeah. rural parts of the country. Hard to change uh, the mindset, I suppose, it, of tradition. Yeah, exactly. And then they go through early marriage as well. And then sometimes a lot of them even drop out of school to help their mother with, with, with chores. And so female genital mutilation tends to happen in the transition between primary and, and secondary education. And when talking to parents, we discovered if there actually was the option of sending their daughters to secondary school, if there was a school in the region, they would send their daughter. Mm -hmm. So for us, it just made sense to focus on girls because, okay, you're, you're helping them in terms of um, giving them options which are different from going through FGM and getting married. Yeah. Uh, so just it's just opening up choices in that way. Yeah, completely, I completely get mm. that. They, they were the ones most most in need in some respects, I think. Exactly. The yeah. And then also, you know, there's a lot of international research that shows that if you educate girls, that is the biggest investment you can make for a community. So girls t tend to reinvest any income they earn back into their families, like 
90% of their income versus like 30 to 40% for a male. I'll tell you what I think is interesting. You you worked mm. in banking at the time, I think, mm. and you were setting up a charity, the charity Education yeah. Center. That was in 2008. And setting up a charity, you know, it's no small thing when you're already doing what I assume would pretty much be a full-on job. How on earth did you manage that, Sonna? Yeah, I know. I, I have a tendency of doing this where I just go ahead and do things and then I'm like what I, what I'm, I'm taking on this huge task so I, I usually take stuff on and then figure out what to do afterwards mm-hmm. luckily there was a real buy-in from the community and the community actually have helped to drive a lot of the stuff on the ground so I have to hand it to them as well it you know that's the only way I could have done it having such a hands-off approach from London is to have that community involvement and like work shoulder to shoulder with the community. And that's one of the pillars that ETC is based on. It's not about us coming in there and like telling them what to do and then like doing it. It was really about teamwork and they really wanted it and they were helping to drive it forward as well. I think the objects Um, that work though, aren't they? Exactly. Strangers parachute in with their fancy ideas and and then set things up and then parachute out again. That's that's kind of doomed to fail. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it's been a very organic process and it's taken a long time to get this school up and running. It wasn't kind of overnight, but I think to be able to create something authentic and sustainable, it's the only way it could have really been done. Yeah, it kind of took on a life of its its own. How do the parents feel about mm. their daughters going to what what is effectively, I suppose, a boarding school? For many of them, the parents live far yeah. away and they're, they're having to stay there. Is there kind of fear or suspicion about handing their daughters over like that? No, no. I think because um, teachers and education is respected, Uh, all around Kenya and so there is a lot of pride um, in the parents that their daughters are going off to to school and it's a very safe environment Um, you know there's there's a matron that looks after them so I I wouldn't say that's that's an issue we have had to like for example convince some of their fathers this is a good idea and you you know you, you kind of have to speak to them in their language so okay you marry your daughter off and you'll get two cows but you let your daughter go to school and she gets a job and she'll be able to buy you two cows a month and I think over time they're able to see okay this is having such a positive impact on their daughters and their families and their communities so that's a great way of approaching it actually (laughs) yeah so Mm. you've been running a Mm. code queen initiative can you tell us about that yeah, sure. So actually, so the last job I did in the corporate world was new business development in sub-Saharan Africa. And that took me to Uganda. So I spent quite a lot of time out there. And I noticed actually, Uganda's got this huge youth unemployment issue. And I was surprised because all the young people I came across were very talented. And I, I couldn't quite marry that up with this really high youth unemployment rate. And then I got talking to a guy who owns this startup village, the startup hub in Uganda, it's called the Innovation Village. And we we talked extensively about this gap in between university and work. So, you know, university courses are very theoretical. They're not really geared up to give young people work-based job skills, basically. And there's this gap that really needs filling through 
kind of adequate training. And so we'd reached a point where we'd handed back the school in the Masai Mara to the community. So I was thinking about, okay, where do we take ETC next? And this kind of came along and felt like it was the next logical step, really, especially when we're thinking about the future of education and work, because our program Code Queen focuses on digital skills as well as other workplace skills. When it comes to the Code Queen, how are you funding that? Are you um, are you trying to raise money for it? Yes, Linda. So, I mean, we were lucky because our initial funding came from an organisation called the Funding Network, uh, who have been great. But that was for just the pilot stage. So now we're looking to fund for a full-scale project and um, it costs around £350 to take a student through Code Queen. For example, one of our graduates recently got a job for Tata in India and she's making double that as a monthly salary. So like in terms of your return on investment, it's pretty good. So we've got a fundraising page. So if anyone cares to donate, they can go to that page, which is like it's a Virgin Money giving page. I'll put that link on our website as well. So people oh, thank can you. COVID-19, the dreaded virus. What impact has that had on the work that you're doing out there in the school and, and also in the training programme? So unfortunately, with this, with this, with the school, that was affected because you know it's like a phys- physical infrastructure. The girls were physically there. So because the the school was a was a public private partnership, so we handed that back to the community, and it's run by the government. So it's a government school, and all government schools were closed down. And so the the school was closed down in March uh, 2020, um, but it has reopened again actually a week or two ago, oh, which yeah. is which is a relief because you know teenage pregnancy rates have like shot up in Narok which is the county where where the where the school is and I'm sure FGM rates have have gone higher as well and but I mean the girls are back in school now so that's that's a relief really and with the training program luckily because this is all based on digital skills but we were conducting our programs at the startup hub called the Innovation Village in Uganda. So we've had to migrate all our teaching online. At the moment, it's um, currently done 100% remotely. But unfortunately, that has meant we haven't been able to cater to everyone. So we've only, we're only able to offer the course to young women who've got laptops and who've got access to data or Wi-Fi. So because COVID happened in between us running a cohort, we did see a 50% drop off. And this new cohort that we're running, we've we've had to kind of say you need a laptop and access to Wi-Fi as a prerequisite of joining the course. And unfortunately, we're not in a position where we can do otherwise. But the plan would be that once once the pandemic settles down and the restrictions are over, we're then able to use the Innovation Village again so that we're able to also serve girls who 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 might not necessarily have access to laptops and wi-fi do you think that the young maasai women who they are helping today Mm. do you think that that will initiate a huge change in the next generation and how they behave 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. For example, when you meet these young women, they are full of so much ambition. Some of them want to be neurosurgeons, doctors, lawyers. They've got huge ambitions and they're really talented. So we had our first graduation in April 2019 and we've had like a 100% transition onto higher education. So I have no doubt that these young women are going to go off, they're going to study, they're going to have great careers, uh, and they're going to come back and share their wisdom and their wealth with their community and help to drive that forward. That's amazing, um, actually, 100%. Yeah. Going on to further education, that really is amazing. Yeah, the school's done really well. They've also, you know, they've won a couple of awards at county level as well. I kind um, of wonder if these women are spending a lot of their spare time studying rather than Facebooking and doing the things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in a way, sometimes having limited access to technology could potentially be a blessing as well, yes. right? I think past generations have sort of proved that as well to some extent. Yeah. It's, it's a curse and a blessing really, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, Definitely. I can't imagine that you've got much spare time. <laughs> But oh, yeah. usually ask what hobbies have you got? Actually, I've started a master's. Um... Of course you have. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing with that? Is? It's a master's in psychosynthesis psychology. I don't know if you've if you've heard of it before. No, I haven't. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's known as the psychology of hope. And the thing that fascinates me is like human motivation. What motivates different human beings to do different things and what I love about psychosynthesis psychology is that it doesn't just look at um, I, I guess it's called lower consciousness as in oh, what's wrong with this person what where do they need to develop in their personality but it also looks at the the human being's potential as well like in terms of what motivates a person to think just about themselves and to move to a place where they're okay then they're thinking about their family their community humanity so it's looking at all these different aspects of uh, of humans and humanity and how we can like move to a place where people care about things beyond themselves. So yeah, I I, I just find it very fascinating. It's very fascinating. I, yeah. I, I read somewhere though that you're quite keen on being a yogi. Oh. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that kind of linked? It sounds very linked to that. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think, yeah, because I have to say I, I love yoga and spirituality and psychosynthesis psychology is related to that. And, you know, yoga actually means union and it's about kind of union with something bigger than yourself. Uh, and I think that's what it's about and that's been my motivation behind this charity as well almost because I, I don't know I guess when I um, from a young age it's, it's been maybe it's been like a subconscious thing but if I'd chosen the normal path of getting married at a young age it gets harder to make an impact beyond just the immediate few people around you whereas I've kind of I guess I've gone off on this other path where where thanks to education my education I've been able to make an impact to many more people and I sometimes I wonder okay what is what is all that about and I do feel like it's all somehow linked and I'm trying to connect the dots if that makes sense. I noticed that one of the the quotes that that you that you made um, that I found is it's only when you're out of your comfort zone that you get to know yourself as a person. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that's that's very much what underpins what you do as well. And sometimes it is uncomfortable, isn't it? Definitely. It's definitely uncomfortable. And you have to be comfortable with the unknown. And I think the the biggest decision I made was was leaving my last job so that I could focus on getting Code Queen up and running. So that was that was quite scary. But like I said, it's only when you're out of your comfort zone you're really gonna grow as a person. So it's been a learning experience. she's doing out in Kenya is absolutely fascinating. Of course, it's talked about quite a lot, the female genital mutilation, awful, awful situation that a lot of these young girls find themselves in being married off. You know, and I thought it was fascinating when she talked about it's how you approach the family, you know, in response to my, my question. Did they like the idea of their, of their daughters going off to school? And when she explained how she persuaded the fathers by equating that marrying a daughter off, you might get two cows. Whereas if a daughter is working, she'll be bringing in lots more. And I felt that's, that, that's a very clever way of getting people to agree to that, to the benefit of the daughter. Yeah. Absolutely, it was a very interesting part to it. I agree with you. I really particularly enjoyed the Masai Mara, her her experience there. I've read so many books about the Masai Mara and, and I've just found it a really, really fascinating and quite sort of a, not a dark place, Linda, but it, it's still... It's still a place where people find it hard to get to and hard to to get to know that you know what goes on there. Mm. I think the interesting thing about these people is that it's it's almost timeless. Mm. You know, I can imagine that they live in much the same way as they were living a hundred years ago, two hundred, three hundred years ago. I don't think things will have changed very much That's right. for many of those families. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was fascinating was that she gave up a really good career in banking. And that must be a pretty well-paid job to do what she's doing, which is probably not, in all fairness, a very well-paid job. And that says something as well about the woman. She, mm. She's a very measured person, isn't she? She is, actually. She is. She's great. Mm. That's all we have time for in this edition of Women Making Waves. We'd very much like to thank our guests, Christine O'Reilly and Sonal Kadcha. If you know of a woman who's making waves, we'd like to speak to her. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews. Women Making Waves is a jibber-jabber production 